Hello and welcome to episode 83 of the Reds Unrestricted podcast. I'm your host, Dan Club, and I'm joined today by David Comerford to preview Liverpool's trip to Manchester United. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. Yeah, um, it comes around again uh, very early this season, um, earlier than normal, with two clubs. United are in disarray. Liverpool aren't in disarray. We um, haven't had the ideal start to the, to the Premier League, but we're far from in the doldrums like they are, let's put it that way. Um, before we get into the United side of things, there's been some ongoing off-field issues, if you like, this week um, with Liverpool. Um, and we're going to start by touching on Naby Keita. Um, obviously, reports um, this week that he was unsettled, I think is the way to describe it, at Liverpool. Um a little bit by the lack of game time. Um, his contract situation hasn't been resolved yet. And generally, he's just not overly pleased. I believe he's under contract until 2023. So he's obviously in the final 12 months of that now. Um, and Florian Plettenberg from Sky Germany has reported that he was unhappy that contract talks had stopped. Um, Jurgen Klopp responded to that by saying there was no truth in that report. Um, so who do you believe? Um, but I do believe Klopp also hinted and touched upon the fact that Cater wasn't happy that he wasn't playing, because let's face it, who is? Um, so, Dave, I'll bring you in on this. First of all, how are you doing? And secondly, where do you stand on this Naby Cater situation? I'm good, Dan. And um, the thing that I was just sort of Googling there as you were talking, doing the intro, actually, was um, talking about you know that, that fixture against United coming around quickly. I, I had a quick look of the last time we actually played them in August. Um and it was actually 2001, if this website is right, wow. um, with the uh, Community Shield. Oh, and then yeah. before that, you have to go back to 1990. Also, commu- I mean, it's literally just Community Shields. So the last time it happened in the league match was 1972, apparently. Oh, um, yeah, that's a long time. Yeah, which is which is quite mad. So on Cater, um, I guess it's, it's difficult. You know, you, you mentioned, you know, who do you believe and, and things like that. I reckon there are times, and last week might have been among them, kind of fitness issues notwithstanding, where Cater's probably sat, sat on the bench and feeling like he should be playing, um, looking at kind of who's out there and what the situation is. If you look at last season, he was available for 29 out of 38 Premier League games, which was obviously something of an upturn um, when it comes to Cater. Um and of those 29, he started 14. So roughly um, 50% just under. Um, and I'd say, generally speaking, when Cater's fit, you, you would say, I think most fans would agree on this, he's going to start one out of every two games I think, when he's when he's fit. Um, and I think part of that is going to come down to the fact that there's probably going to be injuries elsewhere in the midfield, you know, especially with Thiago, who's someone that Cater can rotate with. Um so you look at that situation and you think, which clubs could give Cater more minutes than that? Because obviously that means half the games he's not starting. And he also comes off a lot as well, we know that. So you think about that group of teams, and I'm thinking probably teams who are sort of Champions League contenders, as opposed, but by that I mean Champions League qualification contenders, I should say, as opposed to actually competing for the trophy itself. So I think you're looking at kind of teams in and around like fourth and fifth in the, in the big five leagues as opposed to 
the side who, who can compete for the Premier League and Champions League like Liverpool can. So I think for Cater, it's a bit of a trade-off in terms of when he thinks about his future. Does he want to be playing every week or every time he's fit? Um, is that his main concern? Or is he happy to maybe not always be in that starting lineup, but also have the opportunity to contribute to, you know, potential, you know, Premier League, Champions League uh, winning campaigns. So I guess my kind of overall take on it would be in terms of how he's actually sort of feeling right now is that I don't think it's what he envisaged when he joined the club um, in 2000 and was it 2018? Because he came like a, a year later. Um, yeah, and, I think that's right. I think we signed him a year, yeah. 2017, didn't we? And then he arrived after, yeah. Yeah, so it was kind of a, a sort of agreed in advance. So I, I think he envisaged something different, as we kind of did as fans, to be fair. I think probably didn't think we'd be maybe in this situation with Kayser. We probably thought he was going to be more of a, a leading star in this team uh, when, when we bought and paid a lot of money for him. Um, and I also think that he'll probably be open and, and receptive maybe to other uh, offers that are out there, but I don't think he'll be kind of actively agitating to, to leave the club. Personally, yeah, that, that's an interesting take on it, really. And I suppose sort of the early reaction from the initial report was that it would take a huge offer for Liverpool to consider selling Cater. And I think that's kind of reflective of Klopp clearly thinks highly of him because he stood by him for so long. And Klopp is sort of renowned for standing by his players, and um, even when sort of the whole world, the whole Liverpool universe is screaming at him to. As not give up necessarily, but kind of move on from someone. And Naby Keita would kind of be a case in point on that because, like you touched on it there, in terms of like he wants to play whenever he's fit, and that's kind of the ironic thing in all of this because, like the the, the reports coming out that he's not happy with the amount of game time he's had or the lack of it, and you just think, well, a lot of that's down to yourself. Like you're right to touch on the other night, but he just returned from illness as well, even then. So you think how fit actually was he? So there's a real irony to all of this. Like he's sort of unsettled and not happy with the amount he's playing, but like I say, a lot of that's down to him not being fit enough a lot of the time. So, but yeah, I think, I think you're right. And maybe return to Germany, you know, we, how many times have we seen players come over it not quite happen for them? Because again, you said it when you were talking there, we haven't quite, seeing an advocate we were expecting from our point of view. But like you say, it hasn't quite happened for him. Like he was expecting either. It's one of them deals that hasn't quite worked out. Um, and I, we're clearly not ready to sort of cut ties and cut our losses on it yet, like Chelsea did with Timo Werner in many ways. And it's a strange comparison to make, I suppose, for a lot of reasons. But Chelsea clearly have seen something or seen enough of Timo Werner to send him back to Leipzig. Now, I'm not suggesting Kate has been as bad as him, but there is some out there and there is an argument to say that with the fitness issues thrown in, Liverpool could feasibly say, no, you know, if we were a bit more ruthless, maybe if Klopp was more ruthless, you could easily say, not happened, you haven't performed like you expected, your injury record is terrible, quite frankly, so we're going to sell you, we're going to cut our losses, but we're not doing that and it looks like we might end up giving him a new contract, so... Just to sort of round off the cater chat, Dave, um, would you give him a new deal? I would, uh, personally. I'm one of the fans, really, I think, who supports Cater and gets behind him and hasn't really given up on him like a lot of fans seem to. Um, and I'm not saying that's entirely unjustified, but I think 
in terms of what we see when we're on the pitch, um, there's enough there for me to still uh, want to keep him. Really, um, it's going to be interesting to see whether he actually, whether he actually does, you know, agree to sign it. I think, like I kind of touched on earlier, it's probably going to depend on how strong his other options are. Not only in terms of the wages he he's getting and whether they can offer more than Liverpool, but also, like I said, how competitive are those teams that you know would be interested in him? And I think the talk seem to have dragged on for a while now, and I guess based on precedent, that does make you a little bit wary of of what's really going on and whether the negotiations are proven particularly fruitful. I think it's quite striking that you've seen Diogo Jota and Harvey Elliott sign new deals in the past few weeks and um, really jumped the queue, I suppose, in terms of contract extensions because their deals ran much longer. But that really says to you that those negotiations were really smooth. Um because Liverpool, I think both parties were very happy with their situations um, and it was very clear-cut and they could just almost hash it out um, pretty swiftly. But obviously with, with Keita, that's not really the case. And I think not only from an internal point of view, but also externally in terms of how it's perceived, maybe it's going to depend on how things go in this first sort of part of the season. Because if Keita, you know, say he plays, and, and we'll come on obviously to teams uh, for the United game later on, but say Cater uh, plays on uh, Monday and plays well, and then that kind of starts running the side for them, as we know with with Thiago injured, and he can get into kind of a rhythm where he's feeling happy, he's enjoying his football, and Liverpool are happy with him, and and in some respects that would be building on what we saw a bit last season, which w- was broadly positive for him certainly. Um, then maybe that kind of swings swings it towards um, extending it, and if not, then maybe both parties decide that that moving on could be in their best interest and obviously another thing you've got to kind of consider with this um, not to kind of bring this discussion back up again but if Gator is allowed to leave or if you refuse to sign a new contract and you know he's going on a free or being sold in January or whatever happens um, Liverpool are going to need two midfielders next summer two major midfield signings as well because uh, it looks pretty certain I'd say that we'll see Oxley chamberlain and um, and Milner leaving at the end of their respective deals um, next summer and I don't think even Liverpool would think that one player is enough to replace three and especially with the uh, the fact that you've got other players who are injury prone and ageing as well so I think it's one of them do Liverpool think that Kate is more valuable to them um, as opposed to you know going out there and potentially paying 30-40 million for that extra midfielder in addition to probably the marquee name that we want yeah that's a very good point Um and you're right, I don't think even frugal Liverpool would suggest that the, the Jude Bellingham um, signing would cover those three and anybody else um, who might move on to pastures new. Um, but do not be surprised if James Milner signs his 68th one-year contract extension at Liverpool Football Club next summer. Not that that's a bad thing. I made that sound like it was a bad thing. It's not. Um, no issue with that whatsoever. Um, and just to have my say on Cater, um, like you, Dave, I'm... Uh, a fan of Naby Keita. I think he offers a lot when he's on the field. I'm as frustrated as anyone. The fact we can't get him onto the pitch anywhere, anywhere near as often as I'd like. Um, but I think this is a huge six months for him. It's not even six months because of the World Cup. I think he needs to prove his fitness over these first few months. Um, and the, the contract dragging out isn't even a bad thing for me because I would drag it out if I could myself. 
I'd give him these two, three months to prove himself. I said it previously about him and Oxley Chamberlain. I think they're in some sort of like battle to try and get a new deal. Um, and Oxley Chamberlain obviously being sidelined already is kind of already lost, really, unfortunately. And having said that, I think Cater still needs to get fit and still needs to get playing because we just can't hand the contract to somebody who never plays. Um, it's as simple as that. Um, but we will move on. And we're going to move on. Just briefly on to Darwin Nunez, um, just because obviously we've seen, we all seen and spoke about what happened um, on Monday night, his headbutt in inverted commas against Crystal Palace that made him rightfully see a red card and um, obviously suspended for United game. But Klopp touched on it in the press conference um, and he said that he was very disappoint- disappointed with himself, as in Nunez was. We never had a situation like this before. He apologised. We told him it's not necessary to walk through the building head down. We all make decisions in life. No, sorry, we all make mistakes in life. If you don't do it again, then it's all fine. Which is fair enough, um, I guess. And certainly the the part about him not sort of walking, moping around, feeling like he's cost the team, even though he might have done. I completely agree with that, especially for somebody so young and so new into the side. Um, Dave, do you have any any thoughts on Klopp there? Is he right to sort of not brush it into the carpet, but be positive about Nunez? I think Klopp has this reputation that is kind of fair or unfair based on the earlier part of his managerial career where people think that because he's so passionate that he will scream at his players sometimes when he's not happy with them. I remember a Wijnaldum quote once where it's like, when you expect them to really lay in, so yeah, sometimes he'll he'll lay off, but it's almost when you've let your guard down a bit, maybe you're feeling a bit complacent, then that's when um, you might get a bit of a rockers up the backside. Um, I think this is a case where Klopp doesn't really feel that he needs to say much more. Like it, it's kind of unspoken, really. Um, Obviously, we we discussed this on Monday. So if you know if you're listening and you want to kind of hear our immediate reaction to it, um, then just go back to Monday's episode. But what struck me about the quotes, or one of the things that struck me from today, was Klopp saying, "You know, we've never had a situation like this before," and you know he's right. Um, I was speaking to a mate the other day, so, so this is a bit unverified, but apparently it's the first um, red we've had of of that kind of nature um, since Klopp took over. And, you know, considering that that that's was sort of six and a half years ago at this point, that says a lot really about the, the levels of discipline in this team. So it's kind of a new problem for, for him to encounter at Liverpool, um, which is interesting. Um, but I, I don't think he's felt the need to be sort of really sort of strong in his rebuke. Um, because like I say, I think, I think Nunez understands the severity um, of, of what he did and, the, the effect that it would have had uh, and the fact that there isn't any room for error, error for Liverpool and he's kind of cost his side there and when he, when he said Nunez apologised I'm hoping that not, not only is he apologised to the manager but also in the dressing room as well because the team will probably be feeling a little, little bit let down I'd say um, by him but I think f- f- from the player's point of view it's like he needs to grasp really the, the weight of what he did without kind of tearing himself apart so that kind of demeanour in the training ground, I think. You know, you can talk about Klopp saying don't mope around, but he also, I, I wouldn't necessarily, if I was one of his teammates, want to see Nunez kind of laughing and joking about the place. Like I just probably want to see him just like a picture of focus, to be honest, mm. um, and really just being like a complete sort of 
almost a complete contrast in terms of his professionalism to, to what he was on Monday night. I think almost a bigger challenge for Nunez isn't like processing this, but maybe it's kind of how he responds when he returns to the pitch and what kind of mindset we see from him. Because as um, I think Chris mentioned when we spoke about it on Monday, we are going to see um, defenders target him now and how does he respond to that? I think is it a huge sort of test for him. Um, but like I said, as much as we all agree it was a moment of stupidity, um, my sort of take on it now when the dust has settled, if you like, is that similar to Klopp, if he doesn't do it again, I, I look back on it as a learning moment that was maybe needed for him. Um, and I also still have a lot of confidence that, you know, when he's on the pitch, he's going to score a lot of goals, not only this season, but um, for sort of a few seasons down the line. So, yeah, obviously a, a really difficult moments and a big early challenge that we might not have been expecting but I think it's been handled been handled fairly well so far but we'll, we'll kind of see I guess we'll see when he returns yeah yeah I, I agree I think he clearly grasped the magnitude of the situation straight away you could tell when he was walking off I think once sort of the immediate red mist had subsided and he realised he'd been sent off and as he was walking off fin- finally walking off after James Milner had persuaded him to leave when he was walking past Klopp and that, I think you could tell straight away he realised he'd he'd made quite a grave error. And I don't really have any concerns. It, if anything, it could be a blessing in disguise. I think I said this on Monday, it happened so early in his career, providing he learns from it, like you say. I think if he does it again, we'll see a wholly different response from Jurgen Klopp. Um, I think it becomes a repeat offender. But there's no reason to suggest he will. Um, I think I've seen today that during X amount of games at Benfica, I think it was, it was a lot of games at Benfica, he never got sent off once. This was not really a thing. Um, people spoke about, we've all seen the video of um, Anderson winding him up, and he clearly does his job, but like you can't really knock him for that, you know what I mean? But, like, Darwin Nunes has played international football, he's played in Uruguay, he's played in Spain, he's played in Portugal. Like, being riled by a defender isn't anything new. I think it was just a case of him being particularly up for a game, you know, first game at Anfield in front of a packed packed stadium, Premier League match, wanting to impress, you know, really wanted to do something. He's just got caught up in the moment. And I have no concerns moving forwards. I think he'll come back with a bit between his teeth. I think you're right. I think around the training ground, there'll just be the air of professionalism, wanting to get his head down and almost apologise to his teammates in training before he gets a chance to in a game again, because... I'm sure that's the way he's going to respond and I've got every faith that he'll come back and put it right. If anything, like I said earlier, it might be a good thing that it's happened so early in his career. Um, it might have been better if it happened in one of the friendlies. That probably would have been ideal, to be honest, but it didn't. So we go on. Um, now to what what would normally be a really nerve-wracking part of the show, whereby we preview a game against Manchester United, my most hated game of football in the world. But we could have a little bit of fun this time, uh, because my first question, Dave, is what have we made of Manchester United so far this season? Well, it has been extremely entertaining, is what I'd say, to sort of preface everything. Um, And I guess with the fact that Liverpool have kind of struggled off to, to start the season, it's like this has been the solace, really. For me, it's like it's not been great, but it's been nowhere near that bad. Um, obviously, I've watched both games um, that they've played so far. Brighton, they just got outplayed by by um, by Brighton, a team who 
I kind of sh- shouldn't really be anywhere near them in terms of quality. But you know, they, they've got, in my opinion, a, a brilliant manager in, in Graham Potter, and it wasn't really a surprise that he was able to just outwit. He was able to divide the system that would just outwit and confuse them, and that's what seemed to happen. Um, and then you get Brentford, which is one of the most kind of extraordinary pieces of kind of Premier League television I'd describe it as that I've ever seen, to be honest, in that first half. I think it might have been the Nadia of the whole post-Ferguson era. And it's one of them where it's like it keeps getting worse. And it's like you, you always assume with each time where it's like this is the low point that it's going to be the lowest um but I, I do think that 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 might have been even worse than getting beat five nil at home by liverpool just in terms of the fact that that liverpool team got what was it 92 points nearly you know challenged for a quadruple you know that picked apart some very good sides so from that point of view even though it was your biggest rivals it's like i don't think it's as bad almost as as the way they got dismantled by by a brentford team that will probably be lower mid-table this season. Um, and as bad as United are, and as much respect as I've got for Thomas Frank, I could not believe what I was watching at all. Like, it, it did not feel real. Um, and I think Ten Hag has made some bizarre decisions too. You know, it's probably one of them where people have a bit of sympathy for him. But I guess particularly the use of, like, Christian Eriksen. Like, the first game, I'm pretty sure he was, like, a false nine or a striker or whatever. And then against Brentford, he puts some defensive midfield. It's like, well, why don't you just play him in the role that you actually, you know, bought him to play? Unless they did buy him to play this role, which is just mad. But why don't you play him in his actual position? I, I don't really understand that, to be honest. It's like, I know there was kind of a, a scarcity of, of forwards, but he's not the answer to that by any means. I think there's, there's much better answers in this. I think Rashford might have even started against Brighton. So you think to yourself, well, why isn't he up front um, kind of thing? But, you know, while the managers have to take certainly some of the responsibility, I also think that everything around United feels so sort of like, it, we talk about soft underbellies. I don't even, I think it's like a, a level above that. It's like everything feels so like vulnerable around them. So what if, what you need really is just for one thing to go against them and they seem to fold, to be honest. Um and we saw that obviously it's pretty spectacularly demonstrated um, against Brentford. And I also think that we saw that at Anfield, um, what, when was it April, um, that we last played them, certainly in the spring. Um, I think we scored after about five minutes, two days, and you're just like, yeah, you knew from that moment that it was not going to be one or two nil. You knew we were going to batter them um, from then. And to be honest, some people might have said they would have knew it from kickoff anyway because of, of how hostile it was going to be and how the United players would inevitably crumble. Um, and that's why I think it's critical in this game that Liverpool start fast. And I think we did that against Palace to a degree, but in a lot of our games recently, um, sort of if you take it back to the end of last season too, we have been slow out the blocks. We've been kind of reactive at the start of the game as opposed to being on the front foot. So I think if Liverpool can put United under pressure early on, then it's going to bode very well um, in terms of result because of United's kind of psychological weaknesses. Yeah, that that what the, the the what you touched on there in terms of United crumbling is what gives me the most hope about this game of football. Like there were plenty of things to be positive about going into this. Um, United's form, United's dismal, disastrous, hilarious form, being obviously the biggest one. But 
the fact that they do seem so fragile and they do just seem sort of fit to collapse. And that's kind of a hangover from last season. Like there's part of me because it's Man United and my whole childhood has been sort of cursed by them being really good. There is part of me every summer that thinks, oh, it's United. Like they'll be, they'll be back. They'll be challenging again, whatever. And then obviously you see what happens in the first couple of games. The scars are there. Like, like the scars are there from what's been going on the past few years. Um, and that for me, you are right. You you touched upon our sort of slow start in there. And I think it's six games now where you can see the first in. I think I'm right in saying them. And that's simply too many. You can't always come back from that and win games, as has been proven in the first two of this season. Um, but for me, if we can score first against United, which obviously we're perfectly capable of doing, then I think we could run riot again. And it would be the confidence lift that we needed, as well as being the whole kick in the teeth that they really don't need. So I think that's really crucial for this one. Um, before we move on from United, um, I, I want to get your, your thoughts, Dave, on exactly why it is so bad for them right now. Like They have a lot of discussion, I mean, a lot of conjecture about ownership and some people are blaming the owners. We've all seen the Jamie Redknapp and Gary Neville um, clash, I suppose, um, last week when Gary Neville was adamant it was all the Glazers' fault and Redknapp was... This was after the Brentford game, of course. Redknapp was pinning it on the players. And Where, where do you stand on that, Dave? Um, and also, I want to ask you how bad it could get. They are quite clearly bottom of the Premier League as it stands going into this one, which is something in itself. But realistically, you know, how low down the table could they finish? I think with the first part of the question, people do this thing in sort of football debates a lot of the time. And I think people on TV are guilty of it because you want to be sort of more dramatic than maybe nuanced sometimes. And I think Gary Neville is kind of guilty of that. And so is Redknapp to a degree. Like people want to nail their colours to the mast in terms of what they think the reason is. But there's not really an acknowledgement that it can be both. And it's just all about degrees. But it, for it to be that serious at United, it's not going to be a single factor. It's a comprehensive kind of dysfun- dysfunctionality, I'd describe it as. So you've got every element of the club failing for me. In terms of the ownership, like I know a lot of Liverpool fans are sort of sceptical and saying, the you know, they look at some of the players United have bought, the money they've spent, things like that. And they say, well, I'm going to, I can really complain about managers not being backed. Um, the thing that really strikes me with them is they've not appointed competent people in the positions of sort of power with it within the football club. So especially sort of recruitment roles. Um, and you, you can trust that the, the two sides are really competing against if they want to get back to that sort of top level in Liverpool and City and their operations are very, very slick. And the people who are sort of being empowered very much know what they're doing and everything's working harmoniously. So that I think is almost the biggest mark against the name of the Glazers that they've, you know, since Ferguson's gone and he was really this larger than life kind of all consuming figure. It seemed like the people that they've entrusted have basically proven hopeless, a lot of them. Um, and then the players, you know, we spoke about them folding there. Um, there's kind of a lack of, just a lack of players taking responsibility, really, um, and players hiding. Um, and and that's, that's obvious. I don't need to talk too much about that. And I think the manager, I mentioned there about some of the bizarre things Den Hag has done, got loads of criticism for um, 
the way he sets up against Brentford and his team selection. And also, I think the fans, you know, people probably has to, has, hasn't to blame them for, for anything, but the way for, for it to fail that much, I think, it's like I said, every single party involved plays a part and the fans are included in that in a minor sense. And one example of this is the first game of the Ten Hag era. He gets booed off at half-time. And I'm like, that was really bad, obviously, what you were watching. But I don't think that... And obviously, context plays a part too. But does that happen at any other club? I'm not necessarily sure. And that kind of further toxifies the environment. So, yeah, I, I don't know about that. Um, in terms of how bad it could get, um, I don't think they can treat top six as a guarantee, but definitely based on what we've seen. And there can't be that arrogance there from them. I don't think there's a prospect of of like Neville was saying, you know, finishing the bottom half or anything like that. Um, I think it, if it if it got to a point where where that was remotely on the table, Ten Hag's gone, and then if they bring in someone for a salvage job, um, to get them sort of top eight uh, at a minimum, um, and then the other thing I'd say in terms of, I don't think they'll finish that low down. Is it looks like there's still going to be some new signings uh, coming in. Um, obviously, Casemiro is the one that seems to be uh, getting over the line um, as we're kind of recording this. Um, hopefully, not available against Liverpool. It doesn't look like he will be, which is kind of a relief because it's going to just sort of bring back Champions League trauma um, seeing him line up against us. Um, but yeah, he, he, he doesn't look like he'll be the only one in terms of uh, big, expensive signings coming in. So the Casemiro one is like ticking the biggest box and filling the biggest weakness in the team, I'd say. Um, whatever, whatever you think of the sign, and I certainly think in the short term it should do that. Um, and then, yeah, there'll be probably a couple of other panic buys <laughs> um, to, to fill other gaps. So I think it'll work out reasonably okay in terms of league position. It doesn't look like they'll be able to finish top four on the evidence of two games. Things can still change so much. Um, but yeah, certainly a very low base to be starting from. So. I don't, I don't see it being much worse than sort of seventh, eighth, uh, an absolute sort of lowest, to be honest. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I think that is probably how things will pan out. I think the Casemiro signing um, looks like it's done as well. And I agree with you. It, it, it is an upgrade on what they've already got. Um, and every fibre of my being wants to say that wouldn't be hard um, because it wouldn't be hard. Um, but yeah, it's a good signing. And like you say, we've come across him more than enough times in the Champions League. I think it's an interesting one. Like I've sort of um, related that to the Rafael Varane sign of last season. Like a club like Real Madrid, you know, don't often offload their players for no reason. And Varane had a really poor season with injuries as well. And I'm not suggesting Casemiro will do the same, but I do think Ancelotti is quite happy with Camavinga and Shuameni a name well-known to us, obviously, um, as those options, and is therefore quite happy to see Casemiro go. Um, And I think that's an interesting thing to factor into the fact that he is heading to United. Um, But yeah, like you, I don't envisage them finishing in the bottom half. As hilarious as that would be, I think they'll finish stronger than that, I think. Possible qualification for Europe, but like a conference league, which would be funny in its own way, um, or the Europa League, potentially. Uh, but like you say, I don't see top four as a realistic target for them, unless they have an incredible end to the window, um, which you never know, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, moving on to the game itself, more now then. Um, we well know now that Liverpool have many injury issues, so 
we'll start off with that. Um, how, from who's left standing, Dave, how do you see Liverpool lining up on Monday night? Yeah, well, that's obviously the the key thing, really, isn't it? Um, there's, there's a limited pool of players at the moment. I think you actually look at it, and there was a time where it was only... There was a time where the injury crisis had basically just wiped out Liverpool's depth, but the first team looked intact. Um, I think that was probably the case against Fulham. Um, now, unfortunately, you've got, obviously, Nunez is out um, and Thiago and uh, and Matip too. Um, but I don't think that Matip injury looked too bad. But it looks like Gomez is going to be the one who starts um, coming into the, the back five uh, that we saw the other night in place of Phillips. Um, so I think the, the interesting ones are the midfield and the attack. Um, I've gone Fabinho, Henderson, Cater as my three. I think Harvey Elliott had good moments against Crystal Palace. I don't think he was amazing. Um, and I'd like to see Cater play this one. You know, we spoke about earlier about him kind of maybe being frustrated at the lack of opportunities. This looks like an opportunity for him. Um, in my eyes, I think Milner was really frustrating um, when he played uh, the other night. And I can't see Klopp having Elliott and Cater in the same side, um, certainly not at the expense of Henderson. So that would be my trio um, in the midfield. Also, one thing to say, um, kind of unrelated, but just while we're on the subject of, of midfielders, I feel like Fabinho has been getting a lot of criticism. And I don't think it's, I think a lot of it is like unjustified. People are saying he's been sort of crap for months. And I'm just like, well, you know, maybe he hasn't been amazing, but he, he just feels like a, a weird scapegoat. Um, to me, uh, even based on the first couple of games this season, like this isn't the best version of Fabinho, but it's kind of a long way from the worst uh, in my eyes. And I certainly don't think he's in any sort of decline. Um, but yeah, that's just something that's been annoying me. Frontline, um, Salah Firmino Diaz with Nunez suspended, uh, Jota still on his way back. That's what it's going to be. And we obviously need to see uh, Firmino play a lot better th- than he did against Fulham. So he needs a he needs a big performance here, but um, what do you reckon, Dan? I suppose it is just a, a midfield question for this one, unless you've got any sort of really bold picks. No, nothing, nothing bold outside of that, really. And I'd probably just, I'd probably just fall on the same midfield as you. I think in an ideal world, to be honest, I would go for Fabinho, Henderson, Elliot, but I think balance-wise, I don't see that working. I think Henderson has to be on the right-hand side of it. Um, to play with that triangle of Trent and Salah. Um, I don't like Henderson from the left as much. I never have done. That's just a bit of a personal thing, I suppose. Um, and Elliot would have to be on the same side. I, I genuinely believe it's an Elliot or Henderson, unless Henderson's in the six. Um, and I think we need to get Henderson into the side. Uh, and just to say as well, I agree with you on the Fabinho thing. I said it um, early this week, I think. People have been really getting on his back. And I can be critical of Fabinho, and I absolutely adore him, as you well know. But I've said it many times before. I always reference that Aston Villa car crash of a half an hour. When he's bad, he's he's really bad. Um, but I think he's been perfectly fine so far this season. But I've seen a lot of criticism of him myself. Um, and I don't think it's been justified, to be honest. So, yeah, I think I would fall on the same 11 as you. Um, but... I would like more players to be available to make some changes to that, to be honest. But we are where we are. Um, score predictions time. But before we get score prediction, um, our favourite part of any show, um, 
Is this a must-win game? Uh, I'd have to say yes. To be honest, it's unfortunate because um, it's three games into the season and it's United away and regardless of form, that's quite daunting. Like Last year, I think I saw someone mention this, last year was a big outlier in terms of Liverpool actually going there and playing well. Normally they go there and they're, they're miles off it really and they're having to sort of really try and grind something else. Um, I, I do think it is, yeah. I think, you know, even if we do win the game, we'll still be four points behind and then drawing it or losing it, you're looking at sort of six or seven. Um, and yeah, I, I'm not sure I see kind of a way back from a start where you've not won any of your first three. Um, to be honest, it is possible, of course, it is um, over the course of a long season, but yeah, it, it feels like that. And yeah, so the, the stakes are already very high. You know, we're going into this with um, 12th against 19th or 12th against 20th, I should say. Um, and yeah, both teams kind of desperately need something to kickstart the season. Obviously, United a lot more than Liverpool, but we shouldn't, you know, downplay how important this one is for us, too, I suppose. No, and it would be the perfect way to kickstart a season, obviously, of course, as well, because not only is it, or would it be sort of first victory of the season, despite the performances, well, Fulham wasn't great, but Palace was okay. Palace was okay performance-wise. So getting the three points on the board is crucial, and I agree it is a must-win game. But like I say, to do it against United at Old Trafford, where historically we haven't been very good. Um, and And I said earlier on today to somebody like, regardless of what's going on around the game, every time it's United, whether it be at Anfield or Old Trafford, there's always a trepidation for me. And that wouldn't be any different. That isn't any different already for this one. So, yeah, we go again. Um, just before we go, um, score prediction. Go on, Dave, let's have it. Well, the sort of raving fans we have, the loyalists, will know that last season I actually predicted a loss in this game. Yeah. Um, and... We didn't lose. It actually went quite in the other direction. Um, so I'm almost tempted to like repeat that and inspire a similar sort of deliberate jinx, which is definitely what that was. Um, hmm. But I think I'll go for two one to Liverpool. I'm not gonna. I'm not in any circumstances. Am I gonna say Liverpool are gonna go to United and? ambassador them like it could be United could be in an actual relegation fighter and we could be clear at the top of the league and I'd still be saying that but I think especially the way this season's kind of gone so far in these first couple of games like I don't want to be sort of too bullish going into it um I think if Liverpool if Liverpool play well um I think they could they can definitely hurt that United defense obviously United have players that can hurt ours too which has been um, a bit susceptible so far, but yeah, you just really want to see us score that first goal, and yeah, I think a lot of it's going to hinge on how well Firmino plays too. The game plan has been disrupted. I think we were seeing a lot of like um, trying to get Nunez up against uh, Martinez, basically, if if he'd been available, um, and obviously no Jota too. So with sort of Maguire in the team, I think, and and Firmino leading the line, you're thinking to yourself, maybe that tactic is going to be less effective now if that's what we were going to do so we'll see more of maybe a traditional uh, Liverpool attack and performance so hopefully that's um, that's enough to to undo them and uh, yeah like I say I just think 
you've got to take advantage of the atmosphere around the club and not kind of give them any reason to be to be hopeful. Yeah, um, I agree with you on the tactical side of things, by the way, as well. I think I was actually thinking as you were talking, it's kind of a bit more of an old school approach um, with Firmino, if there is such a thing as old school now. And if it is too early to say that, perhaps, but I think it'd be Firmino trying to pull them apart. And it's something we've done for years on the club, so it shouldn't be too difficult to adapt to. But yeah, like you say, without Nunez, I don't think we'll be targeting the aerial duels necessarily because Firmino... He's decent in the air, but he's not going to win many of them. Um, just yeah, I I think I think the the first goal is so massive. It's massive in any game, but it's so big in this for all the reasons I mentioned earlier. It give us a huge confidence boost having not scored first for so long, and it could just make it turn a little bit toxic, and they might be fearing the worst. So if we get that first one, I actually I don't envisage a tight game. So I'm going to say we do score first and I'm going to say we win 4-0 just because I think almost anything's possible if we get the first one, even beyond four. I think it could turn that sour there. I really do. Um, that's my hope anyway. Um, but yeah, that'll be all we've got time for. Um, we will join you again next week to look back on Liverpool against Manchester United at Old Trafford and discuss all the fallout from that game. Um before we go, I um, just want to tell everyone or remind everyone or ask everyone just to give us five stars on Spotify and leave a positive review wherever you listen to us. Um, keep checking out the YouTube channel. Um, and yeah, keep listening if you can. Um, and keep supporting. Um, Dave, do you have anything to say before we leave everyone? No, I'm just uncomfortable now that you've said, you've effectively said Liverpool, if they score first, will win by four goals at a minimum. Yeah, and you sort of left it open to something sort of. That's what I'm saying. That that would dwarf last season. So yeah, that's just made me even more um, uneasy before the game. Basically, that that's what I believe. I just don't see. I know I'm going on again now. I don't see <laughs> how if Liverpool score the first one, get our tails up, get our confidence up, and do the opposite to them. I don't see how we don't run riot. Um, I really, especially with the crowd, like they're already talking about protests before the game's kicked off. If we go in the lead early, I'm talking sort of first 15, 20 minutes here. I honestly think it could be anything. I really do. Um, but yeah, that will be all we've got time for. Join us next week when we discuss Liverpool 18, Manchester United 0. Um, and yeah, take care and speak to you soon.